Hey, and welcome to Trashy Divorces. Alicia, It's a new trash day. Up? It is a new trash it's day. It's a new trash day for Trashy Divorces. Yes. What a fun episode this week. I mean... Time in a bottle. Sure. And we really did go in radically different directions with it. This episode is what you call Anytime is a Good Time to talk about a Jim Croce song. I mean, that's true. So it, it's true. It fit, it fit for both. What have we got to talk about before we talk about our episode this week? We have new patrons. We do. On Patreon. Who have we got? We have Jen, we have Emily, and we have Rachel. Thanks, Jen and Emily and Rachel, we for your really appreciate Patreon you. support. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, everybody, we're doing some really pretty fun stuff over there. Yeah, and it's going to get more fun. It is going to get so much more fun. Right now, you're getting some fun, trashy tidbits. We just changed Patreon levels over. Mm-hmm. So for as little as $2 a month, you can join us and get Stuff. Like weekly trashy tidbits, early access to episodes. But for the $5 level and the $10 level, there are some new benefits. And my secret hint that I'm going to drop right here, do not skip the middle part of this episode because I have some fun in so many more ways than what you know. You do. Fun coming. Thanks, ladies, for your support on Patreon. You rock. Check us out there if you're interested. This week on Trashy Divorces. We, um, ah. God, we have like a mega famous person and then we have a less mega famous couple, I think, but uh, really trashy people. So trashy. You covered who this week, Stacey? The, um, the divorce of Harry and Linda Macklow. He's a real estate developer in New York City. They were married for 57 years before he revealed his affair and I, left to move in with his girlfriend. Confirmed <laughs> asshole. Yeah. Seriously, and, he, 50. and he almost blew up New York City one time. And a Martha Stewart mention. And so this story really had everything. It, it, <laughs> everything. And, and who do you have for us? But not as much as the everything my story your had. Your story Which has, if you're playing mm-hmm. Trashy Divorces Bingo, this oh. is your day. True story. I covered the Trashy Divorces of Marilyn Monroe this week. Yeah. The Trashy Three and a Half divorces of Marilyn Monroe three and three and an allegation it was a little bit of fun it there may have been some tears towards the very end sure which happens sometimes with trashy divorces anyway thank you everybody for tuning in we hope you enjoy this time in a bottle sure trashy divorces episode we will see on the flip side and don't skip through the mid-roll especially if you're a fan of Dominic Dunn (gasps) Fun! Fun with done! Let's do it, Stacey. Let's do this. Yep. Go, go. Go, go. Hey, Stacey. Hey, Alicia. You have kind of a interesting divorce this week. I do. I have have notable people who I'm not sure how famous they are outside of New York City. What I know is there's a lot of art. There's a billion dollars worth of art. I Seriously? A billion dollars worth of art? Mm-hmm. Holy fuck. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a long time marriage. 57 years. Holy cow. Like, why do you get divorced after that? Tell me your story. Well, because the know. mistress is only 60. Oh, Jesus. I have so many questions. What 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 do you have? You want to talk for trashy You want to talk this week? Time in a bottle. Okay. Uh, so I'm the talking. First thing that I'd like to do is talk time in a bottle. I'm talking a very mean, very rich couple, married 57 years, as noted. 
before the husband comes home and says, hey, baby, by the way, I have a girlfriend and I'm moving in with her today. No. Right this minute. And out he goes. (gasps) Boom. 57 years? Welcome to the Maclows of New York City. So that is what happened to Linda Macklow, art collector and wife of New York City real estate developer Harry Macklow in May of 2016. So fairly recently. mm -hmm, Both were pushing 80 at the time. They're both still kicking and boy, do they kick hard. If you're not in New York, if you're... I can just think of so many better things to do when you're 80 than leave your spouse of 60 years. But I haven't heard this story yet. Continue. I mean, I'm not saying right or wrong. Like, I don't... Like, by that time, haven't you gotten it figured out? No, clearly not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's probably... It's safe, I think, to suppose that Harry's a bit of an adrenaline junkie, Harry Macklow. Oh, he likes to ride fast, does he? Yeah. So, again, if you're not, like, in New York and don't read the New York Post for your weird law blog gig, you may not know much about these people. So tell us all. All right. So Harry Macklow was born in 1937 and raised in New Rochelle, New York. He came from modest means. His dad was a tailor and I think ended up being like a garment executive or something, but like not not family money there. For completely inexplicable reasons, this poor guy leaves New Rochelle after graduating from high school in 1955 and heads to the University of Alabama to matriculate at the college. Okay, two things. Two things. Two things. Just two. Just two. Okay. I noticed you left out a birthday, just a general year, which I can actually verify for you because I went on the hunt because I had a lot of questions. Pretty sure it's early August. With your rando interjection shout outs and research this week that I was curious. Hmm. Number two, what What? in the Sam hell makes a Jewish kid from New Rochelle, New York, Decide he wants to go to the University of fucking Alabama. Land of the Klan. In 1955? I mean... Oh, my God. It is curious. Maybe he was a freedom rider? Is he like a big liberal dude? You know, I had that thought. I... He washed out of, I don't know, whatever. He dropped out after a semester. It he was, was like, not his thing. He was like, fuck this. Yeah, not his scene at all. So he heads back to New York City. I don't know that that's a nice thought that maybe he was like, oh, I oh, shall this place is not bring social reform to the people of the South. And um, obviously the people of the South were not into, sorry, the white people of the South were not into that. So yes, unsurprisingly, he dropped out after a semester. Headed back to New York City, where he Roll Tide no. where, yeah, where he went to work at an ad agency. In 1959, he married Linda Berg, the daughter of a Bronx doctor who was working as an editorial assistant at Doubleday Publishing. So oh. she came from like slightly less humble origins, but just to be super clear, these are not people who are skating by on family money. They rent a garden apartment in Brooklyn. Their landlord has a business renovating brownstones and realizes that 21-year-old Harry is actually, like, really interested in in what he does. Oh. So the landlord is like, Harry, why don't you go and be a broker? Go be a real estate broker. 
and like see if this is what you want to do you know because it's really i love i love my industry and and you seem like you might yeah you might have an aptitude for this so harry does never looks back hops into new york real estate game on so he buys his first commercial property in 64 oh my he pays twenty seven thousand five hundred dollars for it he redesigned it and he ultimately sells it for $12 million. Holy smokes. Nice little return on investment. And this allows him to begin gobbling up residential and commercial real estate all over Manhattan. Oh, yeah. You just get oh, yeah. quadrillionified your percentage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was not yet a major player in New York real estate, but he... He was steadily, He's you know, about to be. getting richer and expanding his horizons. There were setbacks. <laughs> okay. 1985. So he's been at this a few decades, a couple decades. 20 years. Yeah. Okay, but he married her in... 59. 59. Had some real estate success in 64. Well, and then ongoing. And ongoing, and okay. now we're 30 years in. Yeah, 1985. Okay. Um, so there used to be these things all over New York in particular. I don't know if this was ever much of an Atlanta thing, although it probably was. They're SROs. They are single room occupancy. They're often called SRO hotels. Yeah. And it's basically you rent a room with a bed and a desk, and there is like a communal bathroom on in the hall and a like communal kitchen area. That so you it's share. better than a hostel, not quite a hotel room. Right. Okay. But it's but it's long term. It's housing. It's affordable sure. housing for, you know, people of less than robust means, right? So elderly people, disabled people like and in New York, I mean, you've always had waves of immigrants coming in. You've always like there's always That's been probably a need. needed service. There's always been a need for this. So Harry grabs a couple of these buildings and uh plans to demolish them because he wants to build a hotel because that's what rich guys do. Okay, so let me jump off on a, a little bit of a tangent here because I wasn't strictly familiar with the SRO concept. Oh, no. Did a little looking. So in the <laughs> 1880s, the YMCA started offering SRO housing in its buildings in big cities to accommodate like people who had moved from rural areas to find employment. So you could live at the YMCA for three to six months, uh, like 150 a week, something like that. You've allowed a pause in your story for me to do YMCA. Well, that's what I'm about to say. So by the 1970s, the typical YMCA SRO tenant was either otherwise homeless or was like a gay young person who'd been abandoned by his family. (gasps) So that is what the Village People's YMCA is about, is sort of the SRO thing. It's not about the track over the basketball court. Who knew? Oh, my God. Is it time now to do it? Why you do what you want to do. MCA. Okay. So that was okay. just a little tangent. Uh, uh, Harry's got these buildings and he wants wow. to tear them down. But the city of New York History is like, you. holy shit, we really have a big homelessness problem. And if we tear down all our SROs, we're going to have a really big homeless really problem. Big. So they impose a moratorium on teardowns of SROs. You can't. Oh. But obviously there's like a date. You know, this takes effect on a certain date. Oh, no. And the city's just like, look, if we let rich developers tear down all the affordable housing in the city so they can build luxury hotels, cities are going to be really unaffordable 
and everybody's going to be homeless if you're not rich. So Harry's... Who could have ever... I am astonished. Yeah. Harry's in a panic to get these buildings down before the moratorium takes effect. So he tells his construction guys, like, do what you have to do to get the permits go, right? And so they did not, in fact, do that. Um, oh, no. Nor did they turn off the gas to what turned out to be four buildings that Maclew ordered pulled down on January 7th, no. 1985. No, 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 no. Hours opening. before the moratorium was to take effect. Mm-mm. It has been described as a miracle that no one was killed. This was like really close to Times Square. And like somehow he didn't blow up Times Square. Good for him. What caught on fire? Nothing. That's the miracle. <gasps> I, so two of, uh, two of his employees were charged with reckless endangerment. Oh, Jesus. Uh, one of them ended up pleading guilty to criminal mischief or some, some misdemeanor. Okay, Macklow himself was, of course, not indicted, but the city sued him. He ended up paying a fine of $2 million, and he was banned from building on the site for four years as punishment. Wow. Okay, but he's Harry Macklow, so um, he sues back and takes it to the Supreme Court. Sure he does. And argues like his rights are being violated by this ban. And in fact, the Supreme Court is like, oh my gosh, rich guy, in fact, the city of New York is imperiling your civil rights and so what year is this uh this would have been 80 well okay within 85 was when the teardown happened by 87 he's building the hotel maclo on the site he wasn't supposed to be able to build on for four years oh sweet jesus christ so all right his professional life had plenty of ups and downs but at home he and linda were doing pretty standard married people things they had two kids billy and liz Uh oh that uh, dream Liz had her own trashy divorce, by the way, that will probably pop onto Patreon. Okay, so they had two kids, Billy and Liz, and while Harry was busy trying to put his personal stamp on the Manhattan skyline, Linda dove into the world of art collecting, a passion she's pursued for nearly six decades now. Wow. She's assembled a collection that has been valued at a billion, as noted. Um, Although for the purposes of the divorce, she was able to get it valued considerably lower in order to, I think, try to keep more of it and maybe get more money. Anyway, whatever. Well, that's convenient. She owns art by Rothko, Klein, Warhol, Richter, Pollock, Kuhns, Picasso, Lichtenstein, Twombly, and many, (sighs) many more, including the Nine Marilyns by Warhol. Yeah. She's got a lot of good art. Seriously? Is that a connection point in this episode that oh, I didn't know about until right now? Fascinating. Yes, it is. Yeah, she's got the Nine Marilyns. No way. Yeah. Whole, like, you, I was throwing up inside my mouth over all that art <sighs> that she owns until you said that, and then my ears perked up because... Boom. Yeah, that's ah, funny. I should have shouted that out. Here's of the, all the things you've yelled this week, I hadn't heard that. Here's the thing that's interesting. Go ahead. It doesn't appear that Linda was ever particularly happy in the marriage. So oh. there was a book written about the... For 57 years? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a book written about... Macklow goes on to purchase the GM building. And so this book, The Liar's Ball by Vicki Ward, documents that whole completely bonkers process. Now that the New York 
real estate scene is sort of national uh, in scope uh, with the president being the president. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a very, it's it's a more interesting read than I would have expected. In any case, Ward says that the Macklow relationship has often been compared to an Edward Albee play. And uh, if if you're not super clear on that, uh, that is not a compliment. No, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm -hmm. It's bad. It's a... Yeah, so Ward quotes Harry saying, she said, I could have had a different life. I should have divorced him. But like, then she goes on and describes how inseparable they are. A friend is quoted as saying, they drive each other crazy and they can't live without each other. Which, you know, that's how some marriages are. Like, what? Don't be married to someone that drives you crazy. I don't know. Some people like being driven crazy, I think. Harry seems to have always believed that he had married above his station. He'd say stuff like, she's brilliant. She's just fantastic. I don't know why she married me, but she's extraordinary. A close friend of Linda's is quoted as saying that she was stunning when Harry first met her and said she's extremely funny, a feminine version of Woody Allen, but really, really sped up. She's hypercritical of everything and everybody. So I think she, I think, I think the friend is saying like, she's super fun to sit with at parties because it's, it's all like catty. But obviously within the marriage, that probably was both good and bad, given Harry's penchant for being Harry. So because Harry is no slouch when it comes to getting his way, we are going to take a look at the small 1990s war that broke out in East Hampton when Martha Stewart moved into a George Capond home beside the Macklows. Oh, no. So Georgia Capond is like... Is this guy going to fuck with Martha Stewart? Oh, yeah. No, he chases Martha Stewart out of the Hamptons. Oh, I'm Uh pouring another glass of wine. Yeah, you should probably pour a glass of wine. So Georgia Capond is like the summer White House for Bill Clinton was at Georgia Capond. Uh, It is some of the most exclusive real estate in the world. Wow. In in the 90s when Martha Stewart bought, spent $3 million on a house there. The odd vacant lot, not many existed, but the ones that did started at $2 million. Oh my. With nothing on them. Oh, just, just, if you, just, just dirt. If you want to build, sand you want to build, the starter cost is $2 mil just for the, wow. just for the dirt. So the skirmish began when the Macklows planted some trees and bushes on property that Martha Stewart said was was hers. It was like over the property line on her side. So she takes it to the zoning board. You know what? You know who's in the details? Martha Stewart. Martha fucking Stewart. If she tells me that what I've done is on her property yeah. line, I'm probably going to... Bl- I'm pretty sure that she's taken a ruler and like, yeah, she's... I- yeah. She's sort of a six degrees of trashy divorces separation. A little bit, a little bit. She comes in in a few of these, and she's not always plucky. I love her. Go ahead. Um, okay, so she goes to the zoning board, which is completely what you would expect Martha Stewart to do, <laughs> and lays out her case. And the zoning board's like, "Yeah, like a bunch of these. You're right, are Martha Stewart. On your property, you're always right. So here is authorization <laughs> to remove fourteen trees and shrubs." Out of, like, the hundred or so that Harry had planted. Oh, no. So, Harry was ready and, like, was already in court 
where he was going to sue to get a restraining order to stop the zoning board from issuing the authorization. Like, because he's going to appeal a property line. Yeah. Okay. Um, sure. And so, yeah. So, like, he he's he's on it. Like, he's in court already. Like, I guess he knows that she's going to get the approval. So he's already in court. Restraining order in hand. But Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart is smarter than Harry. And Martha Stewart, in 1995, had armed everyone in her employ with cellular phones. And so her lawyer is at the zoning board meeting, gets the approval, calls the gardener who's standing by the trees and and is like, okay, go ahead. And Harry is like racing in a car, I guess. So like it's the motherfucking M team hand deliver We're on it. Yeah, to hand deliver his injunction. And by the time he gets to Martha Seward's house, seven of the fourteen Fuck disputed yeah. plants are gone. Disputed plants. <laughs> the M team. Who has cell phones in nineteen ninety five? People who work for Martha Stewart. This dispute dragged on for years. It was the subject of at least six lawsuits. It became so... Six? At least. Wow. um, It became so heated that Martha eventually abandoned the home, just gave her daughter the title. Her daughter sold it in 04 for about three times what Martha Stewart paid for it. Like Martha's like, I'm out. Never doing this again. Wow. Okay, another fun story about Georgica Pond, which is like... (laughs) A little, yeah. It's like a weird little blob off the Atlantic. Like it is a pond, but the Atlantic water flows into it. Anyway, because it was the summer White House for the Clintons, there's a story. So Georgica Pond got drained around that time. Like they they went back to D.C. at the end of the summer, and Georgica Pond was drained. And the rumor, I'm waiting for my true crime. No one, no one, no one knows for sure. But the story that went around George Capon was that the Secret Service drained it to check for submarines, <gasps> just to make sure. Just, just checking. Okay. I want to say it's Ron Perlman had a house there, and one summer he rented every canoe in East Hampton to keep people from paddling by his property. Oh. You're joking. No, these are super rich people who are also super eccentric, who are also maybe not good. I don't know. <laughs> I hope the... I, I'm not sure it was Ron, Ron Perlman, but anyway, Calvin Klein used to live there. Like it, it's No, it is high dollar. It's high dollar. It's, it's high dollar. A different case I wrote up, there was a house on Georgica Beach, so it's like right around there, um, that rents for $750,000 a year. I mean, pricey. It's pricey real estate. Okay. You own nine Marylands. Okay. I don't okay. know why we're being stingy about 14 plants and bushes, but please continue. Well, because Harry's a dick, right? I, I, okay. Clearly. So Harry Macklow chases Martha Stewart out of the Hamptons. That like, is. That is boom. Martha like, Stewart is an angel. Yeah. Okay. Let's jump ahead to the early 2000s. In New York City, Harry Macklow is still the guy who illegally pulled down the SRO hotels in the middle of the night and somehow managed not to blow up Times Square or be indicted. Still, he had persevered and had become a master of leverage of using other people's money to buy property, improve it one way or another, and then sell it at a huge markup. Oh, no. In 2003, a building that he absolutely hey, adored... Does he know Donald Trump? Yes. <laughs> in fact... Um, Wait for it. In 2003, a building that he absolutely adored was about to come onto the market. 
So he set his sights on what would become the biggest and by far the most significant property purchase of his career. It was the General Motors building, owned at the time by a consortium of owners, including Donald Trump. Until very recently, it had four foot tall Trump, you know, letters on it. There was a legal fight. Anyway, so it was the General Motors building. And to buy it, all that Harry needed to do was outbid two dozen vastly richer bidders by pulling together $1.4 billion of other people's money. Sure, that's easy. Which he did. Oh, God. Nearly all of it provided by Deutsche Bank. (laughs) And the cast of characters here is pretty bonkers. Like, you're joking. Steve Mnuchin, Mnuchin, the current Treasury Secretary, he, like, some of the loan came from him. I am so glad I brought in a bottle of wine for this. Yeah. So Donald Trump had Peter. Like, he bought it with an insurance company, and the insurance company, of course, put up all the money. Trump didn't. But Trump I mean, took out this big ad that was like, I own the General Motors building. I paid $700 million. Like, he didn't pay anything for it. Oh, Jesus Christ. What year is this? This was 03, and okay. I think they bought it in 98. Lord. Yeah, so basically the insurance company went into bankruptcy and needed to offload the building Uh. and they needed to get trump's name off of it in order to be able to sell it because nobody nobody will touch things that because trump ruins everything i am shocked so um yeah okay harry succeeded in getting this uh 1.4 billion and buys the g the gm building is a an entire city block it is larger than most other structures like it is no, it's kind of a big deal. Ginormous. K-O-A-B-D. And, yeah. And so, you know, it's commercial, but, you know, you can only get so much in rent, right? And so people roundly decided that Harry had just way overpaid for this property. And, like, the other bidders who'd been outbid were like, you know what? Just sit back because this guy, give him a year. He's going to be drowning in debt. Yeah. This is going to fall into our laps yet. Just you wait. (laughs) Can you be wrong and right at the same time? It turns out, yes. Oh my, how? Well, so Harry understood that getting better tenants into the building was the way to grow the rent base. So aside from doing basic reno stuff to de-Trumpify the building, Trump had like covered the lobby with uh, like green marble or something, which just looked 1960s horrible. So, you know, he, he kind of updates it and, and cleans it up, de-trumps it. <laughs> so he sets up a meeting with Steve Jobs in Cupertino, California. Oh, Jesus, really? And together they come up with the idea of a 30-foot-high <laughs> glass cube for, like, to house the flagship Apple store on Fifth Avenue. It opened in 06, and it was sure. a marvel. This is how Vicki Ward described it in The Liar's Ball. At the opening, Harry was joined by his wife, Linda, who was beaming. I remember the, re- the reception they had on a beautiful spring day for the opening of the Apple Store, says one of Linda's best friends. And that was like Harry's defining moment. I've never seen the guy so happy. All of his friends, all of his colleagues were there. And this thing was just fantastic. And that was the only time that I ever saw Harry and Linda really mutually proud about something. Other than that, it was always Linda with the art collection and Harry with his business. Wow. So, yeah, they've been married now for 
you know almost 40 years yeah something like that and so they finally have a moment where they're both happy about something what a so harry starts charming old friends to move into office space in the building and it like a lot of those old friends are hedge funders and so soon it's just like it's like a super lucrative you know hotbed of hedge fund people though hey get it while you can Mm -hmm. the whole enterprise turned into a smashing success for harry and the image rehab that you know finally like winning kind of wiped away the 85 sro debacle i didn't burn down the city part that part um (laughs) And it seemed to open doors for Linda, too, and she became a Guggenheim trustee in 2007. Later, oh, she became wow. a trustee at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Holy cats. Also in 2007, Jana Bullock, the Russian-American real estate investor that we talked about in the season finale of uh, season one with the house on East 12th Street or oh, whatever. Oh, yeah. She also became a Guggenheim trustee that year. Oh, So everything was cool, except that Harry is not a guy who can sit still. Within a few years of winning the GM building, he needed another hit of adrenaline and another chance to put it all on the line. The risk he decided to take was to buy the New York portfolio of a company called Equity Office Properties, eight buildings in total, all in Midtown Manhattan. And once again, he was going to leverage it to the gills, floating on $5.8 billion (gasps) from Deutsche Bank. And $1.2 billion from a hedge fund. Both loans. Huh. This is so... That is a lot like the, of billions. Oh, that's a lot of billions. Both loans had a 12-month term. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And the hedge fund loan was issued at a 15% interest rate. Uh, Vicky Ward. But... Is he on drugs? I mean... Even without knowing that the financial crisis is about to hit, like you, like you've got to know that's a bad idea. This February two thousand and seven. Oh Jesus Christ! Jesus Christ is right. So this is what Vicky Ward says. But and it was a big but. Not only would Maclow have to pay it back in full in precisely twelve months, but it was collateralized by everything owned by Maclow Properties, including the GM building. And on top of this, printed in bold was a clause stating that Macklow had to guarantee it personally. Should he default, Harry Macklow would owe Fortress every work of art, every piece of his boat, every house, even the shirt off his back. Oh, my Jesus. Seven billion dollars. That is so many billions. Personally guaranteed by Harry and in oh. a deal that he and his son Billy rushed to put together in just 10 days. February 2007 shockingly Ah. the loans were not repaid on time the credit crunch hits (laughs) the real estate market softened and the great recession began to take hold harry's gamble nearly cost him every i mean it very nearly ended his career end his career it didn't he was able to get some interim bridge loans he like he was any and he sold the gm building and several other buildings to Obviously, he, he lost those yeah. seven or eight buildings um, from the deal. Like Things went very badly for Harry Macklow in the recession, and it blew up his home life, too. Mm-mm. This is actually the event that broke the marriage. Linda was livid about the personal guarantee 
She was angry that Harry had been stupid enough to lose the crown jewel of his empire, that he had put his family in jeopardy, that he had put his future in jeopardy, that he had put everything on the line. (laughs) In front of him, she would tell friends that Harry was a fool, that he was a crazy old man. He, of course, was deeply depressed. Like, he just got his ass kicked at the thing he loves most in life. And, you know, so he's just beside himself linda is furious well his relationship with billy frayed as his son publicly blamed him in a wall street journal piece in 08 and then took control of the family firm from him and then in 2010 billy did the son billy left the firm entirely and went out and started his own his own company it's important to note that though the maclows had fallen on hard times these are rich people hard times not normal people hard times Harry and Linda continued living. Describe how they're different. From sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Harry and Linda continued living in their Plaza Hotel apartment, value <laughs> set seventy-two million. They continued to own a yacht, twenty-three million. They continued to own the art collection with the billion-dollar price tag. Natch. They continued to own the uber-exclusive Georgia Capond home. They continued to own many cars and many buildings and much else. Covered they they covered months. the debt, yeah. Okay. Um, and he's come back. He he's he's constructed the tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere now, in as New well York City. The largest billboard to his new wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, in 2011, Harry became acquainted with one Patricia Landau. Lando. Land. Lando. Maclo. Lando Maclo. A 50-something at the time, year-old French woman living in Manhattan. Oui, oui. She's the president of a charity and a former fashion executive. She worked for Karl Lagerfeld and... Anyway. Huh. A couple of years later, they run into each other again, and boy, were there sparks. By 2014, he had moved her into an apartment at 737 Park Avenue, a building he owned. And residents in the building were well aware that Harry's girlfriend lived among them. Uh. In 2016... May, he tells Linda. Friends say that she was blindsided by the news. And in June, she filed of that year, she filed for a very nasty divorce. After 57 years of marriage Mm -hmm. with no hint of infidelity. I mean, I mean, you have your gambling. He's been a rich guy. Buildings up my nose and flirt with the wild side of financial crimes. But aside from like, I'd be surprised if Warren Buffett was ah. having affairs, but mostly rich guys have affairs. 57. What makes you decide <clears throat> after a love-hate relationship of 57 years to, well... He's in love. Your 57-year-old mistress. Please continue. And he's in love. Oh, okay, yeah. so... So Linda files for divorce that played out over the next year and a half. Mm. Headlines roared. $2 billion divorce. These two could not agree on anything. But as is his want, Harry treated it like war. At one point, he sued Billy for $300 million, claiming that Billy had stolen several URLs associated with Harry's business. Um, Friends just said that Harry was mad that Billy had sided with his mom in the divorce. About a year into the process, Harry told reporters that he'd give Linda half of his $2 billion fortune if she'd settled the divorce that day. Okay. There was no... This is all a collection of like property and art and like it's not nobody 
he's not sitting on $2 billion in cash that he can just write a check for a billion dollars. No, like, no, 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 no. So the whole thing was ridiculous and, and mean. At best. Yeah, and mean, you know, because then people are asking her, like, wow, he offered you a billion dollars. Why don't you just take it? And at the end of the day, that is what she, she ended up walking away with half anyway. They'd, all of their earning years had been spent together. So it's an equitable distribution state. Anyway, after his, I'll give her a billion to go away, he tells reporters a bunch of take my wife jokes, which are actually pretty funny. Okay, I'm going to no, share a couple. No. Okay. A thief is on trial for stealing a can of peaches. The judge says, how many peaches were in the can? And the thief replies, six. Okay, the judge says, then I sentence you to six days in jail. Suddenly, the thief's husband jumps up and says, but judge, she also stole a can of peas. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. He told another joke in a different interview. Okay. He's a funny guy. I mean, I can oh, see. Oh, like, funny, funny you know. guy. Funny guy. I went to pay respects to my parents' grave. When I walked down the cemetery path, a man was on his knees at another grave, bending forward, crying, Oh, why did you die? I said a solemn prayer at my parents' grave, and when I returned, he was still on his knees wailing, Oh, why did you die? I said, You must be very bereaved who died. He said, I've never met him. He was my wife's first husband. But um, so <laughs> surprisingly, there's been a lot of passive aggression involved in uh, this divorce. I am astounded. Okay, apparently Linda hates being outside of the city. Like she doesn't like to go to the Hamptons. She doesn't like a company. Like she, the city is where she wants to be, not out in what she calls the country. <laughs> sure that. Tony Rich part of the Hamptons is the country. I totally get it. Oh my god. Okay. So so this is the person who says, Oh, that Georgia Pond house, that's mine. And Harry's like, Okay, fine. So he buys another one in view of the first one for he and oh, Patricia to hang out god. in. That was ten point six million dollars. Oh. Um Harry also claimed to be broke when the divorce trial opened. For some reason, thinking that the type of tax dodge accounting that real estate moguls use with the IRS would fly in court. Sure. It, it did, did not. not. <laughs> At one point, Linda called the New York Daily News to tell them she'd turned Harry's computer over to the FBI after finding searches for child porn on it. <gasps> what? That didn't go anywhere, so I'm assuming... It that didn't it... go anywhere. It got buried. Well, I mean, it didn't go anywhere. Okay. Finally, in December of 2018, just uh, just a few months ago, um, the judge finally divvied up their stuff and came up with a roughly 50-50 split of cash, debt, property. Linda gets to keep $40 million worth of art so she can keep being a cool kid at the museum. Harry gets the yacht and keeps all his commercial properties. They're still actually fighting in court because... Uh. They just have, they've been having a hard time like offloading all the stuff that the decree tells them to sell. Like the most of the art, they just won't hire a broker. They hired a judge at one point to uh, a retired judge to somehow auction this art off or something. So, yeah, they're supposed to sell the first Georgica Pond house, but they they won't agree on a value to list it at. (laughs) They just, it's very strange. 
you know, they're both in their early 80s. They've been super rich for many decades. And I think they just don't give a fuck about the court orders, the stuff, or even the money at this point. Oh, they're um, 60 years settled in their ways. So Harry married Patricia Landau uh. in March. And to celebrate the occasion, he had banners hung from his building at 432 Park Avenue, the tallest residential building in the Western Hemisphere, Harry's most recent major gamble in New York real estate. The banners were 24 feet wide and 42 feet tall, and they showed photos of himself and Patricia. They, uh, they honeymooned in Japan, yeah. following an itinerary that Harry came up with in secret to surprise Patricia. In secret. Yep, yep. Linda keeps threatening to appeal, which is weird. How do you appeal a divorce that's done? Especially when, yeah, he's very remarried. Um <laughs> Like, it really does seem like she was unhappy in the marriage for a Titanic, lot, like for a lot longer than he was. And so now, like, she can only focus on continuing to try to make him miserable, I guess. And since he is a newlywed with a slightly younger wife, it isn't really working. <laughs> like, he seems pretty happy. Yeah, I saw a picture of Linda at some art event with, with Billy, their son. Like, you know, she's, I don't know, you hope for the best, but God, 57 years of marriage, 80 years old in divorce court, like, what a nightmare. Trashy divorces, yeah. Yeah, no, it was a pretty trashy one. Get Um, your trash cans ready. That was amazing. I mean, that's the Maclows. Sheesh. We're going to do some pondering about this. Now we're going to go to break. Yeah. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. Done and done. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia, It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? And we're back. Hey, and we're Alicia, back. you have somebody mega famous. Mega famous. Yeah. This story is why I'm pretty grateful for the Trashy Divorces lens. We get a pretty specific lens. We do. In which to tell stories through. And that's super cool because this story is something else. Sure. To tell the whole tale would take hours. I know this because we did it last night. And it went way, way, way too long. This is take two. So I have had the opportunity to refocus my lens. Today, I'm going to be talking about the three trashy divorces of Marilyn Monroe. Maybe three and a half, but that's contested. We'll get there. Interesting. But I guarantee you, you are going to like it. And if there's a trashy divorces bingo card out there, this is, mm-hmm. this is your winning day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Our fair heroine, Norma Jean Baker. Mm. Was born June the 1st, 1926. She's a Gemini. She's an air sign. She's born in the charity ward in a county hospital. That is so unexpected. Like to, It's sad. This is a sad... It's, it, it's not a happy the tale. The story I told last night was, no, was terribly not, sad. Not a Again, happy tale at all. refocus the lens. She is born to a separated Gladys Monroe Baker, who worked as a Hollywood film cutter. She's kind of a flapper girl. Okay. But she's separated, and being single with a kid is no place to be in 1926. No. She's got no money. She's got a lot of problems, first being that she suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. Oh, wow. That's uh... So pretty incapable of taking care of a child. By the time Norma Jean's like seven, Gladys gets her shit together enough to buy a home. And Norma Jean is like happy. It's a real true smile in this picture. Okay. I have a mom. Right. Like she never knows her dad. She thinks Clark Gable is her dad. Oh. Uh, but her transient lifestyle is over. She's with mom and things are great until they take in a boarder who molests Marilyn uh. around the age of eight. He gives her candy and coins mm. to keep quiet. That is. Her mom is like, we can't lose the rent. Oh, shit. It's just it. The saddest story. Mom is not making good decisions. Right. Mom is institutionalized again, where she pretty much stays on and off until her death in 1984. Wow. Norma Jean is a kid that is fascinated by the movies. Like, she wants to grow up to be Jean Harlow. She thinks Clark Gable is her dad. She wanders Grauman's Chinese Theater to put her hands and the feet in the cement. When Norma Jean's 11, Jean Harlow dies. She is inconsolable. Jeez. And I think this starts some sort of sort of thing. Because Marilyn most certainly patterns herself when she is coming to her stardom around Jean Harlow. Okay. 
Okay. Norma Jean ends up staying with a friend of her mom's for a while, Grace. And that's great until Grace runs out of cash and it's back at the orphanage for Norma Jean. But good news, a few years later, by 1940, Grace ends up getting married and taking Norma Jean back. So kind of a happy family. Okay. There's a dog. There's so a half sister. This is almost like an aunt situation. Yeah. Okay. Things are rolling along pretty skippy until. No. In 1941, Grace announces that the family is moving to Virginia and they're leaving Norma Jean behind. Why? Why? There are a few different lines of speculation. One is they wouldn't get any money for her from the state. So she is not financially viable. Like from the state of Virginia? Cur- like from the, Yeah, they, they wouldn't get paid from Virginia because Norma Jean's supported out of California. She's still a ward of the state, I guess. The other <sighs> supposition is that perhaps Grace's husband was molesting Marilyn. I'm sorry, Norma Jean. Anyway, they got to get out of town. And everyone really dreads the thought of... Norma Jean returning to an orphanage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That seems completely needless. So Auntie Grace gets an idea. No. And goes and has a little talk with their neighbor, Mrs. Dougherty. Mrs. Dougherty is 100% in for this plan that Grace has concocted. These ladies have ideas and they're going to make it happen. Target acquired. Because I know what you're about to say. This is the worst idea of Target ever. acquired. Okay. Tell me, tell me, tell me. What, Jim Dougherty. What the is their literal plan? next door neighbor. The boy next door. The boy next door. He's April 12th. He's an Aries fire sign. He's 20. Norma Jean's 15. Uh, and Jim is like, uh, thanks, mom, but she's way too young for me. Thanks. To, to marry. To, to marry. Yeah. Like, she's... But no, thank you. But the ladies still have their plan. And there's a big factory dance that's happening at Christmas. And they're like, come on, Jim, just just take her, just take her. So he does. And he finds out that Norma Jean maybe is a little bit more grown up. She's pretty cool. She's pretty cool. They begin dating in January 1942. Date for about six months. And marry on June 19th, 18 days after her 16th birthday. That is just... that. That is one way not to go back to an orphanage. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't know if we've done a trashy divorce, a marriage yet, just to stay out of the orphanage. Like, you are not old enough to be independent and live on your own, but you're totally old enough to marry. Get married? Sure. Holy shit. Okay. That's bonkers. Yes. Jim is 21. Norma Jean is 16. Newly. She drops out of high school. 10th grade dropout. They moved to Catalina Island because Jim has enlisted in the military. Okay. And it's the it's the early 40s, so... 1942. Yeah, yeah, the war's on. Okay. Norma Jean is a devoted housekeeper. Jim, like, there's so much fondness when you hear him talk in interviews. Mm-hmm. His brother, Jim's brother, comes over and decides to play a practical joke and takes all the labels off the can. So Marilyn is a cleaner and cooker. Like, they right. never knew what they were going to have for dinner. Oh, that's, like, I Surprise! mean... Is it assuming, green beans? Is assuming it... everyone's good natured about it. That's really Applesauce? funny. Yeah. We don't know. <laughs> uh, Jimmer calls Norma Jean just being very unsophisticated and childlike. Like there are dolls on the bed. Sure. She wants a baby. Norma Jean does at this time try to track down her dad. The guy she finds is not her dad. Gladys does come to visit one more time mm-hmm. and does not recognize Norma Jean at all. Oh, it's what a... just... Wow. So sad. 
Norma Jean at this point is, right, teenager looking at the future ahead of her, unclaimed by a father, more than likely going to be nuts like her mom. Right, right. Like as a teenager with all that brain neurochemistry happening, I can imagine this kind of does a number on her. Any stability that she may have built up in that after a fairly traumatic childhood. Yeah, fairly. Yeah. I mean, she is, yeah. Jim ships off to the Pacific in the spring of 1944 after all of this. Cool. But I mean, they're mess. They're effectively happy. Oh my though. gosh, so happy. Okay, okay. Well, Norma Jean writes. No, she. This is a, everybody's happy. Okay, it is. They are in love. There's a it's, that crazy plan worked out. Yeah, I mean, they have a dog. Uh, there's a cow wandering the island. She wants to bring it inside when it gets too rainy. Like it's a fairly charming little existence yeah. that yeah. you know falls apart ish mm-hmm. when he goes to war like they're, right, they're separated right. norma jean in june of 1944 writes jim's mom and says how much norma jean owes her and she loves jim more than anyone else i'll never be happy with anyone else we're about to celebrate two years like yes it is a very happy 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 marriage okay norma jean meanwhile is packing parachutes in the factory sure sure and one day photog comes along yeah. Ah, this girl's photogenic. Hmm. Gets her pictures over to the Blue Book Agency, who sees them. And in March of 1946, Norm Jean applies and starts some magazine print work. Everyone's like, yeah, you can make more money with cheesecake. You can make more money with pinups. You can make more money with some nudie photos. She writes to her station husband, can I do this? Jim's like, I mean... I guess it's okay for now, but when I get home, right, right, absolutely not. You got to stop this, right? Which of course happens because the camera hates her. And sure, she has nowhere to go in a career. Oh yeah, no, I mean, yeah. like that's I've never even heard of Marilyn Monroe. So, so within six months, she is making enough money to quit her job packing parachutes. Yeah, and by July of 1946, as a new platinum blonde, she's given a screen test at 20th Century Fox, and. She's really making her Jean Harlow fantasy come true. Right, right. She's had some agency. Jim's been gone for a few years. But Jim is coming back. And when he does, she presents him with divorce papers saying, I have to be single to get this contract at the studio. But we'll still live together. Oh. It'll be fine. But I have to divorce you to make this next step in my career. Two movies, yeah. And you don't think that that's accurate. You think she divorced him because she was becoming more independent. And I mean, you she got married at 16. You'd like to think so. She's finally lived as a functioning right. adult on her own. Right. She knows how to pay bills. Like, she knows how to cook dinner. There are things that she's gone and, to and a she job can, every day. She can improvise sure. even if there's no label on the can. That's exactly Make right. it work. Jim agrees to a divorce. She signs with 20th Century Fox for a six-month, $75-a-week contract about a month later in August 1946. In later interviews, Jim said that she was just kind and gentle, and she wasn't at all prepared to be in the toughest business in the world. Yeah. And she was way too fragile. Jim ends up being a L.A. police detective. He sometimes actually pulls protective duty while she is appearing later really? in life on film scenes and stuff. Yeah. That, it, so it's, so they didn't, 
like they didn't lose touch. I I I don't know if she talked to him while he was guarding the film sets. Gotcha. But okay. Yeah, he did end up marrying three times, just like Norma Jean. He wrote two books about his relationship with Marilyn after she died. Uh, this is the trashy first divorce. That is nineteen forty two to nineteen forty six. I mean, I you know, I my my grandfather shipped off like a week after yeah. getting married or well, something. They had and, like two years together. Right. To really right. build a home and Yeah, but I think it was it was not uncommon for for that separation to lead to significant marital strife. Sure. But divorce was uncommon at the time. So. Sure. So husband one in the books. Gone. Now we're gonna scoot. Nice guy, though. Nice guy, though. Can't. We're going we're gonna to save about 45 minutes of time here <laughs> okay. and scoot through a brief overview <laughs> okay. of, of the next a bits. Summary of the next bits. Okay. So Marilyn is now Marilyn. She's 20. She can be her own boss. She's probably grown comfortable with some agency of her own. Mm-hmm. She has a contract from a movie studio, and then she doesn't. Ooh. So she ends up doing some cheesecake shots because she needs to eat. And then she starts going to some Hollywood stag parties. Where she ends up meeting the first of an entire set of older rich men who just happen to be some primetime Hollywood influencers. And she was basically at these parties just as a starlet, as I can be. I mean, she's going to stag parties to get ahead. Aren't stag parties like all male? Like, I'm just... You have girls there. Well, clearly. I'm just wondering... You know what? This whole thing is... It is conjecture and rumor, and I do not know, but she ends up meeting a lot of guys, mm-hmm. older, rich, white sure. Hollywood movers sure. and shakers that propel her career yep. forward. Yep. She is also seeing, on the side, this whole stable of young guys. Sure. Just on the fun. Like, well, woohoo! Right? Because Hannah Montana, mm-hmm. best of both worlds. Yeah. Okay. This cycle goes through a few iterations. Old dudes include Joseph Skank, who sounds about as great as you think he does. I know, does. that name is... Oof. Harry Cohn. Johnny Hyde. Johnny Hyde is this last one. He's an agent. He represents Lana Turner and Rita Hayworth. Like, okay, he's so a he's a big, big deal. damn deal. Okay. And he ends up leaving his wife and children for Marilyn. What? Takes her in for a little plastic surgery. Like, he is advancing her career. He's re-signs her to... He gets her re-signed at 20th Century Fox after she gets booted from Columbia, probably for the affair she's having with Cone. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. Anyway, sadly, Johnny Hyde suffers a fatal heart attack at the end of 1950. What? It's all going to hell. And this is her first recorded suicide attempt. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. they didn't marry, though. They, no, they, they did not marry. But they were a couple, and he was representing her? Correct. Okay. I don't know if they ever would have. Like, she didn't want to be seen as a homewrecker. Right. She sure did fuck a lot of married guys. Yeah. But, well, yeah. okay. In January of 51, Marilyn reports to work on the last film that Johnny's arranged for her. And she's kind of having a rough time. Yeah. Okay. It's all pretty bad. Yeah. that's. She feels like she's fucking up her scenes. And I bring this up just because he's going to come back around the bend. One day she's crying offset somewhere. And Elias Kazan and Arthur Miller stroll by. They're on the bigs. (laughs) No bigs. Like they're the most powerful men in American theater. It's cool. And they're on the set visiting John Houston and they comfort her. Marilyn, liking the comfort, starts uh, sharing a bed with Kazan. Arthur Miller 
gets it. He dances the night away with her one night. And senses danger. He senses danger. Um, He is just crazily attracted to her. She has this childlike innocence. He's married with kids. Mm. And rightly, she terrifies him. And in the only smart move that he makes in this entire story, he promptly gets on a plane and hightails it back to New York. Wow, okay. He senses that much danger. Interesting. Okay. That he's out of here. Kazan sticks around long enough for Marilyn to announce that she's pregnant. And he bails. I There's no... Baby, so I don't know if she had an abortion or a miscarriage. Right, that is right. uncertain. This takes us up to about June of 1952 during the filming of Niagara. There's this guy, Robert Slatzer, who has claimed through the years that, in fact, during filming of this movie, he and Marilyn could not deny their love for each other any longer and drive to get married. Where do you think? Where do you think? Yes. Tijuana. Tijuana. And there's your bingo. There's your bingo. They drive to Tijuana and get married. Maybe. Maybe. Allegedly. Daryl Zanuck, head of her, yeah, studio finds out and immediately summons the couple. I want this undone as quickly as possible. Oh, shit. So back off to Tijuana they go, where they bribe the officials that did it and burn the evidence. Whoa. Numerous biographers debate this claim they Whoa. cannot validate this story britney spears and whoever that yeah. first husband this was total Whoa. speculation right <laughs> like can't be validated okay um but i had to mention it for not only the tijuana marriage right right, right. but the quickie tijuana divorce mm, on yeah, the heels of it like it is trashy divorces bingo sure okay so 1953 maybe a marriage and a half and a divorce and a half Enter Joe DiMaggio. Oh. The most famous baseball player. Jolton Joe. In the world. Jolton Joe. November 25th. Sagittarius. Fire. Sign. He sees her photo and he. Oh, I'm sure. Can't even stand it. He has to meet her. Mm -hmm. The day after their first date, Marilyn is talking to a friend of hers the next day. Like, I just had dinner with the most interesting Italian man. Oh, my God. And her friend's like, who'd you go out to dinner with? Oh, some guy named Joe DiMaggio. And he's like, really? You, My he's hero, the greatest yeah. baseball player. And she's like, oh, we didn't talk about baseball at all. Like, he is hooked on her. Courts her like crazy. Four months in, he takes her to meet his big Italian family with the pasta and the aprons. Oh, sure. And sure. Marilyn, who's always wanted a family. Right. right? Big Gets family. Gets it. Loves sure. it. Marinara. Welcome to the relationship of push and pull. Meatballs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's a bombshell. Mm -hmm. She exudes sexuality. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a cause of conflict. Mm -hmm. So, like, what Joe loves about her is what also he uh, gets a little angry about. Sure, sometimes. Jealous, yeah. She makes three movies in 1953. More money for Fox than any other Hollywood actress, $25 million that year. Whoa. But also in 1953, her past cheesecake photos come out. Mm, oh. And she kind of flips the script. Oh. She's like, I was hungry. I, I needed to eat, and all mm -hmm. I had on was the radio. Ha ha. Or like, she makes the most of it. But definitely Joe DiMaggio does not hurt her PR image in reclaiming that. Sure. Hugh Hefner in December decides to use some of those photos to launch his Playboy magazine. Prints 50,000 copies that are immediately sold out. 
Wait, so Playboy launched in the 50s, in the early 50s. December 53. Okay. Mm-hmm, with Marilyn as their first cover girl. Did not know yeah. either of those things. I'm well, guessing you know she that- was not paid for... The use of the photos? Uh, she got paid back in the day for him. Right, I don't. But, I don't know. If played, but Hef probably. Well, Hef has been in love with Marilyn. He's buried next to Marilyn in Hollywood when he died. He bought the plot next to her in the wall, and he's had it on reserve for I am like fifty years. Somewhat horrified to know that he wanted to spend eternity with Marilyn Monroe. Is there any chance that she wanted to spend eternity with him? More than likely, no, because. Thanks, 1953. Right. Now I really got to do some PR spin. Jesus. And the countdown is on to wedding number two. Joe and Marilyn are married January 14th, 1954. She's 27. Okay. She leaves the word obey out of their marriage vows. Really? Which is really daring for the time. Mm-hmm. His career is ending. He wants to settle down. And she's sort of amping it up. Mm-hmm. The public cannot get enough like to the most famous person in sports the most famous film actress oh yeah yeah they're fascinated they go on honeymoon to japan baseball players are a big deal in japan okay all right she eclipses him Mm. with her being there with him yeah they can't get out of the plane they cannot get into their hotel wow like it is whoa crazy few days into the honeymoon, she ditches him, gets helicoptered over to Korea for two days to perform 10 shows for the stationed troops there. Wow. Yeah. This like, is like, this wasn't planned. This was sort of spur of the moment and he didn't like, she, I, she ditched him. Yeah. She ditched him. Like, see ya. See ya, Jolton. Have fun. I'll be back in two days. Oh my God. Performs 10 shows. Like, she's in a tiny skimpy dress. It's freezing. Like, she goes and does her service for the troops. Sure. But they also do something for her. This is her first live performance. Not on film. Like, she is actually getting an audience reaction performing for the GIs. And she sees their faces. She loves the feeling. And she says later, I will never forget my honeymoon in Korea with the 45th Division. Aw. Yeah. So, apparently... Joe is hot in the sack. He's the best lover. Their compatibility at this point may have ended there. Okay. Joe is only friendly in Hollywood with Frank Sinatra because he's the only other Italian Italian he knows. All he does is watch baseball. And she is not giving up any of her dreams to hide in a suburb cooking pasta. She's reading. She's listening to classical music. She's listening to jazz. They both... Joe and Marilyn are 10th grade dropouts. So she is always trying to continue to improve herself, mm-hmm. taking right. notes, learning things. Right. Joe is like, can I just watch some fucking baseball now? She tries to interest him in anything else besides baseball and Frank Sinatra to no avail. Sounds, yeah, he sounds kind of like a dud. He, like, well, at this point, yes. He is. Uh, As a wedding gift, Marilyn presents Joe with a gold watch inscribed from a quote from the Little Prince. True love is visible not to the eyes, but to the heart, for the eyes may be deceived. Joe reads it and is like, what the hell does that mean? Oh, my God. Like, she's a little bit more advanced. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, honey, now that we're married, can you go ahead and tone down your sexuality? I love it, but I hate it at the same time. And it's what attracts me to you, but it drives me crazy, and I'm jealous, and I'm going to need you to tone it down because no one else is allowed to see that except for me. This is awful. Oh, it's toxic. 
So let's move it on up to September. Okay. Married in January. Okay. Now it's September. She is in New York City filming for the seven-year itch. Okay. At 3 a.m. on one cold September night, 5,000 New Yorkers show up in the middle of the night to watch the subway white dress scene. Right, the very famous, yeah. Correct. Corner of 52nd and Lexington. 5,000 people. So in this movie, Marilyn is playing the object of a married man's fantasy. So probably great content there for Joe. Joe's big helper friend, bro dude, Walter Winchell, who just happens to be one of the top gossip columnists in the nation, is like, come on, Joe. I'll go with you, buddy. Let's go down together. Over the course of a few hours, numerous subway blow-ups. Yeah. Joe is shaking. He is trembling. There's a friend that's there that comforts him. Like, dude, it's it's only a movie. Like, this is public exposure. Like, it's fine. Right. Joe is mad. Tell her I'll meet her back at the hotel. Marilyn gets back to the hotel, and Joe DiMaggio promptly decides to beat her that night. After nine months of marriage, she's done. Okay, yeah, good. Good. She good. leaves, files also, for divorce. Can we, can we pause to reflect on the fact that she literally had been working all night long and then returns to Comes the hotel? And, yeah. And he, good for her walking out on that. That is some trash. So they're divorced in October 1954. Their marriage lasted 274 days. Wow. Less than a year. She accused her husband of mental cruelty. Like, she's evolved enough to get that this is not acceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm done with you. She's not. But at least at this point, right, right. she's going to start making some big moves. But Joe isn't done. He's kind of stalking her. He's having her followed. Her phones are bugged. He's trying to catch her in an affair. In November one night, he's drinking with guess who? Frank His Sinatra. big buddy, Frank Sinatra. And DiMaggio gets word that Marilyn is whatever at the one of the hotels with her lover and Joe's like let's go let's go let's go bust in on him. Frank Sinatra is like dude you're out of your mind no we're not gonna do that Joe's like I'm going anyway and so Frank's like all right I guess I'm coming with you Marilyn is literally in the hotel about to rendezvous and just kind of gets a creep feeling uh-huh. just gets a bad bad feeling goes to the window and sees this whole pack of thugs Waiting to bust in the hotel. They grab their shit. They leave out the side door. What does the gang of Goombas do? What does? Bust into the wrong hotel room what? and wake up this like 60-something lady. Oh, my God. In the, from mid-sleep. Like, what the fuck is Frank Sinatra yeah, and yeah. doing in my room? What a strange dream I'm having. <laughs> Things in Hollywood are not going great. Weirder is that Marilyn Monroe just, uh... <laughs> right? <laughs> Marilyn Monroe just climbed out my window and now, okay. (laughs) So things are not going good. Right. You've got two up, two down. Marilyn's like, I'm getting the fuck out of Hollywood. She heads on back to New York City. She really starts to get her shit together here. Starts acting lessons, starts a production company with a trusted friend, is seeing an analyst three to five times a week. She gets the only cat she's ever going to own, Mitsu. Aw, and our cats are being so badly behaved right now. So. So, like, she's making some tremendous growth. Like, she's a cat lady. She has her own apartment. She's in therapy. She's acting lessons, production company. Things are good. It's all going to work out, right? It's not all going to work out. No, because this is where it goes off the fucking rails. Because Arthur Miller. Right. 
Crucible, guy who fled L.A. rather than... Hold on, I'm coming. I'm just going to take a breath. I hate this guy. Yeah. So... Arthur Miller, who fled out of town because of her hot, penetrating sexuality, they run into each other in 1955 in New York. He is an American playwright, referred to as the Jewish Shakespeare, supporter of the downtrodden and original asshole Bernie Brew. I've seen every interview. I'm serious. Like, every... Every interview that he talks about her after her death, and I cut this part of the story and he's jerk enough but he's super smart and Marilyn really so, so he was he was unkind to her memory I, words okay. cannot okay it is I'll we'll talk in trash can summary we're gonna gotcha. we're gonna get there okay. don't you worry uh but Marilyn right in the effort of always redefining herself 10th grade dropout she's like oh the smartest man in the world right wants to have something to do with me and Maybe I'm not a, like every story you tell yourself of all the bad things. Mm-hmm. Maybe he thinks I'm something different. Right. The, a man of letters. Hey, that's it. Old Arthur, just by the way, still unhappily married with kids. Okay. So he's not available. Right. So it's perfectly good since all he's been doing is fantasizing about her for the last four years that they go ahead and carry on their affair in secret for about a year. Right. It's good times. Marilyn Monroe gets some good news at this point. Fox, because she's hightailed it to New York, side of California, like she's got a little bit of leverage. They re-sign her for a seven-year deal at 20th Century Fox at $100,000 a film. Wow. She, unheard of for the time, gets script director and cinematographer decisions. Wow. They also let her make one Marilyn Monroe production a year. Okay, that's a great contract. Huge contract. Yeah. In early 1956, she's filming Bus Stop. Arthur is establishing residency in Reno so he can get a quickie divorce, which he does. And the world finds out that they are going to get married when he is testifying for the House on Un-American... Oh, the House on American Activities Committee. Correct. Huack. He's asked to name names. And he's like, nope. But he has tried. He's found guilty. His sentence was overturned on appeal a little bit later down the road. I happen to think her ass saved him from a much worse fate in that. Right. But on June 29th of 1956, marriage number three. Hmm. Marilyn is 30. Arthur Miller is 40. She converts to Judaism. They leave for London in July. Why do they go to London? Yeah. Why? First Marilyn Monroe production. Oh. Prince and the Showgirl. Okay. This trip is going to be great, right? Marilyn meets the queen. Her hopes are riding. This is the first Marilyn Monroe production. Her hopes are riding on this. Everything is lined up for it to be great. Lawrence Olivier is starring and directing. Marilyn and Lawrence Olivier are and water. Her insecurities are over the top. She feels persecuted. Arthur Miller isn't backing her up. Like you hear Lawrence Olivier being much kinder and more generous in interviews like, I didn't handle her right. It was my fault. It was not her fault. Right. He was much kinder. But all of it's going pretty bad. And she's amping up barbiturates and champagne, Ooh, no, which is no, a bad no, no, mix. No, no. Yeah. She just can't get enough. Arthur is like, I didn't know how needy she was. And proceeds to write all this down in his little diary. Questions the wisdom of marrying her. He's unprepared to handle the crippling insecurities of his bride. Marilyn comes across this little diary. 
No. Mm-hmm. As the movie is a flop. So she has validated every negative story she's ever told herself. Here's the diary. The movie's a flop. And Arthur Miller's like, yeah, if you hadn't gone off with your friend Milton to form the company, I'll just be your manager. Forces her to dissolve the partnership that she's done with her trusted friend. Right. And the flop of Prince and the Showgirl gives him the ammunition to do it. No. Yeah. So he's, okay, so he's like attempting to exert more control. Control. Oh. Even though capital, capital letters, exclamation points. I'm just shaking my head. No, it's It's it's, a bad, bad scene. They return back to the U.S. in January 57. They split their time between Manhattan and Connecticut. These are not great writing years for him. The following summer, she gets pregnant. At six weeks, she miscarries, Mm. triggering another unhappy period. Right. Like drugs to sleep, drugs to wake up. Right. Miller's still trying to write. Marilyn is back with her analyst. Like it, nobody can cope with it. Is Edward Albee? It is. It all of it is bad. Yeah, every last part of it. Yeah. Marilyn starts fantasizing again about Jolton Joe. Oh, well, she has another miscarriage. Oh no, yeah, too. Um, she's thirty-two. She's alone. Like at some point, she loses tracks of her drinks and falls into a coma. Whoa. The maid rescues her. Arthur kind of nurses her back to health. She carries on a trashy affair on the set of Let's Make Love with Yves Montand, who is married to Simone Signoret. The affair is all over the gossip columns, but oh. they're both French. Like, this is so a yeah. film fling. Like, Simone's not worried. We're French. Then just fuck each other and have your fun, but it's cool. Marilyn is devastated over this. While this affair is going on with her, Miller's overseas working and putting the finishing touches on her Valentine's Day gift, this play called The Misfits. He wants to write this to give her some agency and really promote her acting talent and set her up in such a... He knows how talented and blah, blah, blah. It's good on paper. Should have had everything. Starts out really strong for her. But as their marriage falls apart, he continues to rewrite the script on the fucking daily. So the men's parts become better. Tension's Mm. bad. They're on the set filming this. This is Clark Gable's last movie. She has not only Arthur managing her on one side, she's got Paula Strasberg from the actor studio as well, managing her on the other. So she's in this push-pull. He is rewriting the script every day. This is like she's in crisis. He's pulling almost like a Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda, like taking all of her words. So all of her bad. Right. Ah, right. I'm falling. Every bit of her exhaustion, her trauma, her frustration, her our marriage. But you're going to get translate it through your weird fucked up lens in this. I don't know. On this set as well, Arthur meets the sexy little photog named Ingrid, who ends up becoming his next wife, but we're not there yet. So by the end of August, Marilyn is barely able to function. She's sent to a hospital, like maybe nervous breakdown, maybe detox. Joe visits her there. And they Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm, okay. And they start to resume a thing. By the time the filming of The Misfits is done in 60, so are Arthur and Marilyn. Right. Done. They return separately to New York. Arthur comes back September the 4th and moves out. On September the 14th, Clark Gable 
dies of a heart attack. And Marilyn feels really guilty about it, like she caused it because of all of her falling apart on the set. Right, right. It's her dad. Like, she had crippling anxiety around him. Sure. She's loved him her whole life. Marilyn calls his wife, and she's like, he did his own stunts, man. Like, don't feel bad about it. Joe and Marilyn spend New Year's together. And January 20th, the day Kennedy is getting sworn in. Okay. In 1961, Marilyn is on a plane to Mexico for a quickie divorce. Wait, wait, wait. From Arthur Miller. Yes? Yeah. She, what the hell even is this? Like, so he lives in New York and Connecticut, goes to Reno to get a quickie divorce. She lives in New York and Los Angeles and goes to Mexico to get a quickie. Like, what? Once you know Tijuana. I guess. That's just... (laughs) Anyway, these days they have a little thing called a residency requirement. Exactly. I guess they didn't back then. Yeah, in Mexico you could. So JFK is getting sworn in. She's on a plane, gets her divorce, granted on incompatibility of character. Yeah. Comes back to New York. The divorce is granted January 61. Marriage number three in the books. That is the end of Marilyn's trashy divorces arc. Sure. But not the end of Marilyn yet. Well... Marilyn is pronounced dead of a probable overdose, August 5th, 1962. Maybe it's a mafia hit. Maybe the Kennedys took her out. I've seen supposition that it had something to do with the Russians. Maybe it was an accidental overdose. There's a lot to say about the events of that day, but you're here for the trashy divorces, not the true crime. But that doesn't mean there's not a shit ton of stuff about to go up on Patreon that got left on the floor last night. (laughs) How She Died is a fascinating parlor game, and we could know every detail of it and talk about it forever. And sadly, I think that misses the point of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. This girl who constantly was reflected through the eyes of other people into their own manifestation couldn't ever really find her own image. And every time she tried, it was like, it's just, it's the saddest story ever. She continues to get kind of bad hands and plays them the best she's able. Sometimes it's bad men. Sometimes it's bad choices. I think she gives us a remarkable gift of looking at a way of seeing ourselves through the lens of her. She's a fascinating woman. Hold a good thought for her. Those are her trashy divorces. Mm. It's it. I, it's a super sad. She was born and the charity went, you know, like, she, what a story. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much more for Patreon, but uh, I think this went a little bit less time than last night. It did. Fantastic. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want anyone to feel like I've done a disservice to that. I got a little bit more fun stuff coming up in my trash can ratings. Oh, sure. But we need first, to let's talk about the Maclos. Right. Okay. Trash cans. Oh, it. Like, I think Harry Macklow is is a little bit of a dumpster fire all by himself. Like, one thing I didn't tell, like... He, he didn't set New York on fire. He was, he'd, he's an almost you're dumpster so right. fire. You're so right. <laughs> but no, like, in one of the buildings that he bought over the years, I guess he was going to reno it. And he evicted, like, a blind senior citizen or something what? who... What a dick. Told it, like, he... This poor guy is like, this is effectively a death sentence for me. Like... And, you know, he has no heart. He has no heart. He's just, okay. yeah, he's, I have 57 years. I'm still like, it, it is curious to me. 
That's um, a sad story. What do you it, think? It's a it's it's not a good story. Um, I I don't know four four yeah, yeah it's I could I could see gotta four. be a four baseline. I'm I'm down. I'm okay. I'll sign off on four. Yeah, approved. But hey, he didn't blow up Times Square, so he's got that going for him. Small miracles. Small miracles. Okay. <laughs> you ready? I got I, three. I got three three yeah, rankings. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Jim Dougherty. Yeah. I mean, nice kid. Seems like. Seems like a nice kid. Kind of got fucked. What a story. Way to give a kid a place to land. Exactly. And not take crappy advantage of her like everyone else had. Totally. Like, he really does seem like he may get a halo. I think. I I don't. I feel like a halo is appropriate. I don't. I mean, it's kind of. We're going to stay married. I just need to be single for the. Like, there's a little bit of trash, but as trashy forces go, that is the. Just it's a sweet story. Yeah, I, it, it is, actually. like It's yeah. a sweet story. Okay. So Joe DiMaggio. Mm-hmm. There's a little... Joel back. Joel Joe. Joe. I grew up... So my great-grandmother lived in Reddington Shores, Florida, okay. right next to the Tides Bath and Tennis Club. Okay. Which is where I always heard that Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio honeymooned, and Marilyn lost her wedding ring in the sand... So as a child, my grandmother belonged there, like, we'd go there. I would dig and dig and dig, fully convinced that I was going to find Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe's ring. Yeah. wedding ring. And did you? Well, from researching the story, uh, they did not honeymoon oh. in Florida. They honeymooned, right, in, in Japan, Japan yeah. where she spent her time in Korea with the 45th Regiment. Right. So as I'm researching this, I'm like... What what is it? Yeah, what was Grandma Why? talking about? Yeah, yeah, what was G Grandma saying in this? So a little bit of research, which led me to something quite amazing. Joe DiMaggio did take Marilyn to the Bath Club in 1961. She, in this period, gets committed and can't get anyone else to spring her. Oh, ends okay. up getting so angry about it. She goes to the violent ward. She ends up calling Joe. And Joe's like, psh, I'm on it. Springs her out of the loony bin, takes her to Florida, where he's the, whatever, coach for the league that's training there in the spring. Okay. And they spend their time at the bath club. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did, so, did she lose a ring? Did I, you, I can't was, find that information. Was your childhood wasted? I can't. I don't. Probably. More than likely. <laughs> so they spend time together here. But in researching this, I came across something just amazing. Because you wonder, like, Marilyn, what the hell are you doing? Joe beat you. Your right. marriage lasted less than a year. Right. And as soon as you're done with Arthur Miller, you're... I mean, sex might have been great, but you're hot footing it back to a guy who, like, didn't treat you well. So I came across this little, ah, it just, I'm, this may be a crying podcast. So I find an article from the Tampa Bay area where an author has found in an auction notes Joe has made in a Sports Illustrated magazine to guide him in negotiating healthy boundaries with Marilyn. You ready? So sweet. Number number one, don't ever be critical. Number two, forget ego and pride. Number three, talk from the heart. Number four, be warm, affectionate, and love. Number five, don't be a shh. 
shithead, maybe? Number six, be patient no matter what. Number seven, no jealousy. Remember, this is not your wife. She is a fine girl. And remember how unhappy you made her. Happiness is what you strive for, for her. Don't talk about her business or her friends. Be friendly towards her friends. Don't forget how lonesome and unhappy you are, especially without her. Well, like he's had a little bit of evolution and growth. Clearly. That was the diamond that I needed to find. That was the diamond I was looking for. All right. Well, this is our crying so, podcast this week. God, right? Jeez. What a sweet thing. Yeah. Um, he actually quit his job in April of 62 because he wanted to ask Marilyn to remarry him. Joe was the one who identified her body at the morgue. Mm. He arranged her funeral. It was a small group of people only. Joe also... Um, placed a 20-year order for a half a dozen roses to be placed on her grave three times a week after her death. So, I mean, like, I know we're pro-feminist lady podcast and you think people can't change and once a, but sure, maybe there was some, some, <sighs> some hope for Jolton Joe. I found my after diamond. Yeah. Okay, but we're not done. Oh, God. Okay. No, I mean, it's a pretty trashy divorce. You stalked me. Yeah. You're going to you beat bugged, me up yeah. with Frank Sinatra. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> they were <laughs> probably going to beat up the boyfriend. But yeah, I, you're it, right. The, it's bad. Right. I, I mean, I'm two and a half. But it could have been so, it was so much higher before I found that right, little right. scrap of paper. Arthur Miller. <sighs> Sounds like Arthur Miller's a trash pile. He Just, publishes After the Fall his new book, his new play in 1964 and takes a fuckload of heat. Here are a few apropos quotes that he says after her death. She was everything, whatever anyone wanted. She had a little bit of it. You name it. It was there. She was flying high at the end. The interviewer asked her, was she smart? And he waits like it's four minute pause. I guess she was smart enough to survive. And he's just a asshole. Yeah. Like, I get on the misfits, like, shit falls apart, and she's off the rails, and you're using the very worst parts of her to sabotage her and your secret diary, where every bad thing, she's like, you're, uh, he's an asshole and no help at all, and you're finding your next hot girl while you're ruining her life. I'm the maddest about this one. I hate him. Yeah. He's five trash cans. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, I'm mad about all of them. I would rather not spend any other time on him, but by far the trashiest. No, Joe DiMaggio might have been the trashiest divorce at the time, but it had a little bit of redeeming cupcake on the end that Arthur Miller will never have. Don't, if you need to channel your anger somewhere, go find any interview with him talking about his beloved ex-wife. Fucking asshole. Anyway, all right. It's another week of trashy divorces in the can. in the trash can. In the trash can. <laughs> Thanks everybody for tuning in. Have a great week. I'm stay single. Don't marry Arthur Miller, <laughs> and always keep it trashy. Cheers, y'all. See you next week. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production, created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia, by us, Stacy and Alicia. 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.